And now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Anna Gorman. Anna Gorman is a senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News, covering health policy for papers and websites around the nation. Previously, she spent 15 years as a reporter at the Los Angeles Times writing about health, immigration, and the Mexican border. She has taught journalism at the University of Southern California and at Harvard University, where she also completed a year-long mid-career fellowship. Please give a very warm welcome to Anna Gorman. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Uh, I have to admit this is my very first Zocalo event and I am thrilled to be up here with such a great panel and I look forward to all of your questions. So let me do brief introductions and then we're just gonna jump right into the conversation. So Jim Mangia, I'll start here in the middle, is president and CEO of St. John's Well Child and Family Center, which is a network of more than a dozen nonprofit health centers and school-based clinics around the region. Um, he was a member of President Obama's Health Advisory Task Force in 2008, and he, his clinics have always been way ahead of the curve, doing things like providing a living wage for their employees and writing prescriptions for fruits and vegetables. Shana Alex Lavareda is a research scientist and direct, director of health insurance studies at UCLA Center for Health Policy Research, which is one of the premier research organizations looking at the ACA right now. She's done all kinds of work on insurance and access to care, and most recently, an examination of immigrant kids who are excluded from health insurance expans expansion under the new health law. And all around the country, eyes are on the UCLA Center for the work they're doing. And Gabrielle Lazard is, is a health policy attorney at the National Immigration Law Center. She specializes in laws and policies affecting access to health care for immigrants and their families, in particular implementation of the ACA. And she also has, has done some looking, uh, looking at the safety net services for immigrants and those left uninsured, which we'll be talking about tonight. So let's welcome our panelists. Thank you so much. All right, so Shana, we're gonna start with you. From the research that you and others have done at the UCLA Center for Health Policy Research, give us a picture of who the uninsured are in California and how that's changing under the Affordable Care Act. Okay, sure, so let's set the scene. And before I begin, I would like to say that this work would not have been possible without the decades of work by Rick Brown, um, who passed away a couple years ago and was our mentor, and we would like to acknowledge him, thank you. Uh, so we at our center uh, performed a survey called the California Health Interview Survey, and we interview tens of thousands of people every year. So we have a very good idea of what happens in California with health insurance. The uninsured population before the Affordable Care Act, about 85% were either U.S.-born citizens or were um, legalized... Uh, legal permanent residents, uh, with about 15% uh, being what we would term undocumented in our survey, which the closest we get is non-citizen without green card. And we've done some studies and we found that um, that population is mostly what we would call the undocumented population uh, in California. It's only 15%, and that was before the Affordable Care Act. About 7 million people in California were uninsured for all or part of the past 12 months. So some people are uninsured all the time, and some people are uninsured where they cycle in and out, they only have insurance maybe when they're working um, seasonally or, or for some other reason they might lose their coverage. 
So that population is also overwhelmingly low income. Over three-fourths of them had less than what's called 400% of the federal poverty level, which you're going to be hearing that term when we talk about subsidies in covered in California. But the point is, is that they couldn't afford health insurance. And that's why we needed the Affordable Care Act to be able to expand public coverage for the people on the lowest end of the income scale. For the first time, you end up with um, people who are with child without children being able to enroll in Medi-Cal. And then for people in that middle income, 400% to about 138% being able to enroll in covered California with subsidies. And then you end up with this population of residual uninsured after that. We estimated with our projections um, from a model called CalSIM that uh, about four and a half million people of the about five and a half to six million people that are uninsured at a cr any point in time, that they would gain coverage through the expansions uh, from the Affordable Care Act. So many immigrants, which of course we are talking about tonight, many immigrants live in mixed status families where perhaps the parents are undocumented, but the children are illegal immigrants or are US citizens. So for those families where some are maybe eligible for health insurance under the ACA and some are not, what are some of the barriers for those who are eligible, those who do qualify? Okay, so just talking about the health insurance of undocumented persons first, um, I said that they were only 15% of the uninsured, but they also did have the highest rate of being uninsured for a population, about 50, 50% of the undocumented were uninsured. Um, some people are surprised that that's so high. They expect it to be 100%. Well, it's not, because the undocumented are eligible to get coverage through their work, if that's possible, or to go and buy insurance on their own, which can be prohibitively expensive, but it, it can be possible. So when you have mixed citizenship status families, you have the difficulty of, well, maybe the kids can be enrolled, but honestly, many parents do want to enroll their kids in something that they're eligible for. But perhaps you have one kid who's eligible and one kid who's not because of their citizenship status. Uh, one child might be eligible for Medi-Cal and then another child might not be because the undocumented were not allowed to be in the ex expanded population. And, and that makes things difficult. California has a situation where we do put up some state funds um, to be able to enroll more people than maybe the federal expansions allow. But when you, you see those barriers for parents, it's difficult to say, well, one kid can be covered and the other one can't. Um, you know, playing favorites among your own children. But then we also have this, um, we call it the indirect chilling effect, where people are very concerned and, you know, I, living in their shoes, you might say rightly so, that this information might be shared with immigration. We're seeing increased deportations of parents of citizen children um, in recent years, and people are very concerned that if they come forward and say, my child is eligible for this and I'm enrolling, that they themselves might then face immigration issues and, and possible deportation. Let's stay on that issue of deportation for a second. Gabrielle, maybe you can talk a little bit about this. You know, with deportations up, and yet the federal government and, the, and California and covered California encouraging people to come forward and apply for insurance, what is the cross-section there and how do deportations affect applications for public programs? Well, the fear is real. You know, we're, we work on policy issues and do litigation, but we're in touch with the field because we are networked with legal services organizations and community clinics and do technical assistance and training. And we hear every day about people who are really afraid because the administration is deporting about a thousand people every day now. And they just don't trust 
that these assurances about how it's safe to give your information to the government in order to get health insurance for your child are really going to be honored. And it's just, it's an ironic situation. It's like the administration is working at cross purposes. And, you know, this is, this is the president's legacy initiative. Healthcare reform is what we're going to remember him for, but his insistence on demonstrating that he's tough on immigration enforcement is really undermining the objective of getting people covered. Okay, thanks. That, that's, I think that's really interesting and something we will continue seeing even in next enrollment period. Um, so there have been some efforts to cover those, or ta they're talking about efforts to cover those who are left uninsured, and, and specifically un undocumented. And one of those is a bill proposed by Senator Ricardo Lara in Sacramento that would create a parallel health insurance exchange. Uh, and I see some people in the audience who are, who are definitely working on this issue. Can you talk a little bit about how that could help if this passes? Sure. Well, just to clarify, uh, there are two elements to the bill, which is SB 1005, the Health for All bill. And it would, as you said, create a mirror exchange that would provide access to an exchange shopping experience and subsidies that are equivalent to the exchanges that, or to the benefits that people get through Covered California currently and also a parallel Medi-Cal program, or really would expand eligibility in the Medi-Cal program to people who would be eligible but for their immigration status. So there would still be a number of people who are uninsured. In fact, when Shana mentioned the CalSIMS modeling, and if you look at the CalSIMS modeling, the undocumented are only expected to be about a quarter of the people who remain uninsured for a variety of reasons, but it would, most of the other people who are going to be uninsured are people who were eligible for something and didn't take advantage of it or couldn't afford to take advantage of it. This, the SB 1005 would create an opportunity, which is currently not available to the undocumented population and other immigrants who are not in the lawfully present categories to really have access to affordable health coverage. So, Jim, let's turn to you. Even if this legislation does pass, it could be a while before it takes effect. So looking locally here in Los Angeles County, what can and should be done to serve the undocumented now? I know you're working on some efforts with that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, there's currently a program. Um, obviously, community health centers, federally qualified health centers, are required to serve everyone who shows up at their doors. Uh, regardless of immigration status and, 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 and ability to pay. <clears throat> there is a program in the county which um, is now called Healthy Way LA Unmatched, um, which pays for healthcare services at community health centers for 106,000 uh, residents in LA County. The CEO's office is estimating that there's about 385 undocumented immigrants in LA County um, who would qualify for this program. 385,000, what did I say? 385. 385. That's wish. it. I That's wish. all we have. We're done. <laughs> we can go home. Um, 385,000, thank you, um, that uh, would be eligible for this program. So what we're uh, demanding of the, the county is to triple the size of the program uh, to cover those 385,000 people uh, who need health care services. And what we're seeing... Uh, at St. John's, and I, I know this from other colleagues in, that run federally qualified health centers throughout LA County, is this, this pent-up demand um, yeah. of folks who have heard about Obamacare, who are wondering if they can have access. They're still undocumented. They're not covered. Um, they have 
you know, they've been waiting so long to receive health care uh, that they have diabetes and hypertension and many untreated chronic conditions uh, that are costing the system a lot of money because we've been denying them access. So I think, the demand, I think what we have to fight for in Los Angeles County as one of the more progressive counties in the country and uh, certainly um, as a, a, a program that has worked for those 106,000 is to cover everyone who's not going to be covered under the Affordable Care Act in Los Angeles County. And just going backwards a bit, can you explain what Healthy Way LA was and Healthy Way LA matched and unmatched, just so our audience is aware? Sure. So <clears throat> there was a, 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 a federal Medicaid waiver, what they call an 1115 waiver, where there were funds channeled to California and then um, to each of the counties uh, that participated in this low-income health program um, that provided a bridge to reform. And what it did is it, it provided a, a Medi-Cal-like product uh, for folks who were going to qualify for the Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. So a couple of hundred thousand folks um, were signed up into Healthy Way LA matched, and it was called matched because the funding was matched by the federal government. Um, and then there were all those folks who were not eligible for Healthy Way LA matched because of documentation status, and that program was called the, the Unmatched, and that comes out of basically county general fund dollars. Okay, thank you. So federal health, federally qualified health centers or community health centers have gotten a big investment over the past several years from the federal government. Uh, how has that helped in, in growing the health centers throughout Los Angeles County? And, and what role do they play in serving the population of immigrants, both legally and, and those who are here undocumented? Well, I think um, uh, a recent study that I saw uh, by UCLA um, documented that most folks who are undocumented receive their health care services either at a community health center or in an emergency room. And obviously, <clears throat> receiving their care at a community health center is much more effective, efficient, cost-effective. Uh, it provides primary care. Uh, rather than episodic care, it creates a medical home, it creates all of the things that we want, it creates a healthier population. I think from the vantage point of, um, of, of this, this, ask me this, the first part of your question again. So they've made this investment. So, right, right. How, so how is this helping grow these health centers and, and yes. what role are they playing yes. in, so, in serving? So, um, so, the, so there was $12 billion allocated in the Affordable Care Act for the expansion of community health centers. There was a significant amount of money for infrastructure. Uh, we built um, four school-based health centers, uh, built a campus on Hoover and Slauson in South LA, expanded our Compton facility through Obamacare dollars, and then there were operational dollars which were awarded as a result. And there were tens of millions of dollars that came into community health centers in Los Angeles County alone. Uh, both infrastructure and operational dollars, which are ongoing, uh, to provide care to to folks with Medi-Cal and also folks who are uninsured. Excellent. So let's. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want to oh, jump in on that? Oh, I was just going to make a point about how important that is, because I've been looking recently at studies of emergency room utilization, and. Interestingly, one of the biggest drivers of emergency room utilization is use by people who have. Medicaid or even Medicare who can't get a provider in another setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I'll jump into. I'm Please. sorry. This is near and dear to my heart because uh, 
you know, we think about, you know, uninsured, and, and there's certainly appropriately so much attention paid to uninsured, but there's this other population of underinsured, um, so even people who have insurance, you can be underinsured because you can't get access to a provider even once you get the care. Going back to Healthy Way LA, you know, under, you know, Director Mitch Katz, who has this vision, you know, like Healthy San Francisco, of let's give everybody a medical home and really be an integrated system. We're not there yet, but it's, it's nice at least the vision is moving in that direction and everybody agrees that that's a good thing to move to. But let's get, continue with you, Shana. If, if health centers have gotten such an investment, they are obviously serving a lot of immigrants, a lot of undocumented immigrants, but is that enough of a safety net? Is the safe, is, are there other safety net services out there for people and is it sufficient to serve those who are left uninsured even after ACA? Right, well, I would say, you know, there, there aren't other safety net resources necessarily, you know, beyond charity care. I mean, these are the major resources and it's great to hear about all the investment and development that's going on. But I, I don't think that we can argue yet that we're done, that we have you know, tackled the issue and, and spent the money and, and that's it, everybody's gonna be able to get healthcare. You know, we still see issues of people with hours long you know, wait times because they can't make an appointment and they have to go and wait and you know, under the triage system they might wait all day and, and then that has some ripple effects maybe of they lose their job because they don't have paid sick time and, and all of these other issues that all low income workers face, but also, you know, in the undocumented population, that's, that's concentrated there as well. So staying with you, so even though California did a much better job than other states in getting the word out to everybody about Medi-Cal and about Covered California, uh, the, our state-based exchange, there's still a lot of people, and I see this on the street when I'm reporting every day, who still don't know that it's out there. And there was a recent California Healthcare Foundation study, survey study that came out yesterday saying that there's still a lot of confusion. So yeah, what, and by, and what went lot, wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, and, and by a lot, it's half the uninsured, you know, and what went wrong? I, you know, it's, it's difficult because right now there's so many different media outlets that people use to get their attention, and people can be very selective about what information they allow in, um, in a way that I, I think we haven't seen as much when, you know, there was media consolidation and everybody got their information from, you know, kind of the same sources. And so especially when you're trying to tackle people who have been uninsured for a long time, so they're not used to thinking about health insurance. And then you also have a, a psychological issue. In, in public health, we call it the health behavior model. Um, it's a framework thinking about, you know, there's a psychological barrier of, I don't think this applies to me. I think that even if I go look at it, they're gonna tell me I have to pay $500 a month and it's gonna be a bad experience, so I'm not even gonna go look. You know, I'm just gonna filter that information out. That is very difficult. And when you're, you're tying this into an immigrant population, you have language barriers. Maybe the, the media coverage you know, wasn't in the language that it needed to be to be able to get people the information. You have barriers of if they got the information that existed in that language, it wasn't until December that there was Spanish language available on Covered California, so people sometimes had negative experiences with not being able to access the information. And you, you do also have this you know, very real fear that we've been talking about kind of this whole time about, I don't believe that if I go and, and put myself up there, you know, the, the idea of the new mirror state exchange, you know, from a paranoid mindset, you could say, well, that's a great list of people that immigration would then go after. Mm. So it's, it's difficult to, to get people over those hurdles. And to do that, you have to take their very real concerns into account. 
And Jim, you obviously, your clinics did a lot of enrollment. What sort of challenges were you seeing in, in enrolling immigrants into coverage, those who did qualify? Well, I think, <clears throat> I, I, to be honest, I don't, we didn't really see a lot of challenges because I think we had created a culture uh, at St. John's of a medical home, a, a culture of trust. Um, you know, we, we were started by a church that was a sanctuary for undocumented immigrants back in the 80, 80s and 90s. So we've always had kind of this larger uh, immigrant um, population that accesses care at our, at our health centers. And we're lo located primarily in downtown and South Los Angeles and Compton, which has huge um, numbers of undocumented um, immigrants. And so um, I think there were, you know, there were questions that people had, that there were hurdles that had to be overcome, there was education that had to take place. Um, and you know, that was, you know, is there public charge? Will they take away my house? Will they, you know, will immigration come after me? We did feel those questions, but I think the fact that we had culturally competent, uh, bilingual um, folks who could um, talk about what the services were and what the, what the options were, and, and that there were, weren't those restrictions. Um, you know, we enrolled, in, in the last six months, we enrolled over 10,000 folks. That's a wow. lot of folks. Um, at, at St. John's alone. And the rest <laughs> of the health centers, you know, just multiply that out. Of course. And do you still see some of the knowledge gap now? And people, I don't know how many of your folks actually have uh, private insurance through Covered California and are learning what co-pays and deductibles and so forth are. But do you see some of those knowledge gaps for people who haven't had insurance or for people who are now learning that they shouldn't be going to the ER and they should go to the medical home of a clinic? Yes. Um, we're seeing a lot of folks who were, I mean, our call center is, is fielding 6,000 calls a day. Um, most of them from people asking questions about what they're, what, either what kind of coverage are they eligible for or what, kind of, what, what their coverage provides, what they can have access to, what St. John's provides. Um, <clears throat> so there's, there's just a tremendous, and one of the things that I was sharing in, in the green room was uh, just in the last seven or eight months, we've seen a 40% increase in patient volume at our health centers, and that's both folks who are insured and folks who are uninsured. So there was a lot, you know, there's a lot of coverage of, the, of Obamacare in the, in the Spanish language media. And so there's a lot of folks who are undocumented um, who are now understanding that they actually have access to care, that they can go to a community health center and are accessing care for the first time um, other than in an emergency room or just waiting and waiting and waiting until they're so sick that they wind up in a hospital. So we're just seeing this unbelievable um, pent-up demand um, now seeking access. And that's, that's, for those of us who believe that health is a fundamental human right, that's an incredibly gratifying experience to, to be in the, mid, in the midst of. But and, also a bit inundating, <clears throat> I imagine, with yeah. a, a, trying to find enough doctors to serve the population and meet the need and the yes. long waits. Yes, please. I, I just have to add on to that. I, I'm hearing you say this, and it's a wonderful thing, and I can't wait until I get my hands on my survey data from this last year, <laughs> last year, and get to show that that this actually happened. Because you know, we track all these things about access to care, and, and it'll be really gratifying to see those things actually appear in what people are reporting. And, but I just contrast that with so many people's experience. Um, the inability to get through to the call center. I was speaking yesterday to, or not yesterday, earlier, um, about a, with a Korean-speaking application, a sister, who, because the website 
is only available in English and Spanish, has to sit down one-on-one -on -one with the people that she's helping and translate every question and type in their answer. And it's over an hour per application. And, you know, they're getting $56 for doing that. Um, same thing with waits on the call center for interpreters. It's currently running about an hour for a Korean interpreter, which is a major language in the state, particularly here in the Southland. Um, and then I just, I can't imagine the experience of people trying to apply at home. And there are upcoming changes to the system that are going to make it even more difficult. So Cover California asks, it doesn't quite ask these questions about family immigration status in the way that we would like them to. And then once they get the information, the information is input into the system, it then has to interface with a federal database called Systematic Alien Verification of Eligibility, or SAVE. And that connection is not working properly. So there have been a lot of errors in getting that re resolved. Um, but then there are also things that are happening because you have a larger group of lawfully present immigrants who are eligible for the exchange subsidies than the smaller group of lawfully present immigrants who are eligible for Medi-Cal, where people who should be getting coverage through the exchange are being sent to Medi-Cal, where their application is backed up with the other 800,000, and then being sent back to the exchange and just experiencing all kinds of problems. And not to mention the digital divide that, of course, right. many Latino of course, families of and, and many immigrant families don't have computers at home or right. don't have access to the internet. And the fact that there's a requirement that if you're married, you have to file jointly in order to get the tax credits. And many people, especially agricultural workers, have spouses living in another country. So that's been a big barrier. But the upcoming change that I wanted to mention is that on the federal exchange and the other state exchanges, there's a, what's called an ID proofing process where a user's identity is verified by checking their responses to questions about information that comes from the Experian Credit Bureau's database. So if you are a person who doesn't have a long established credit history, including the about 38% of low-income people who are unbanked, as well as most recent arri recently arrived immigrants and you know, pretty much everyone without a social security number, you won't be able to get through that online ID proofing process and you're going to experience delays in having a, a, an in-person verification or mailing your in original documents into a center to have them reviewed. Um, as I said, California has not implemented that yet. It's one of the reasons I think that covered California has been more successful than a lot of the other exchanges, but it's currently scheduled to go on the system in about a month. Can you put California in the national picture? Obviously, coverage and healthcare for undocumented immigrants varies tremendously around the nation and even from county to county across mm -hmm. California. So how does California stack up? Well, California's done a lot of great things. Among them, um, I wanted to mention that not only undocumented people are not eligible for coverage through the exchange, also people who were granted deferred action for childhood arrivals, the DREAMers, they were specifically excluded by the administration um, after the law went into effect. 
And so, these, just to interrupt, these are the, the young adults who were brought over to this country by their parents, um, by no choice of their own, and they went to school here or were in the military here and, uh, and now have been granted this status of being protected from deportation. For a two-year period, which is renewable. We're coming up on the renewals now. Um, so California is using state funds to provide Medi-Cal coverage to the DACA um, individuals who are below the Medicaid income eligibility threshold. The ones who are above, they have the same options as undocumented people. Um, there are nine counties in California, including LA, which obviously has a very limited amount of coverage, that do cover people regardless of status, but we have an unusually fragmented county-level healthcare system where each county does things a little bit differently. And that's not as common in other states where there's a more consistent state-level revenue stream coming from property taxes that haven't been compromised by Prop 13. So we generally see more consistency across states. Definitely. California is one of 15 states and DC that covers pregnant women regardless of status, but it is not one of the five states and DC that covers children regardless of status. And those, are, those include large immigrant states like New York and Illinois. So, you know, the fallback position that those are all tiny little states doesn't really apply there. So we could be doing quite a bit more. I, speaking of putting California into perspective, I just wanted to mention that 7 million uninsured population that we talked about is bigger than the entire population of Massachusetts, for example. <laughs> and many um, other states. People forget right. just how big California is. We are one-tenth the size of the entire country at 38 million people. The next closest state is Texas. New York is, in, is, is a distant third. New York City is, is big, but the rest of New York, not so much. And you mentioned the DACA population. Um, we had a study that just came out from our center in conjunction with the Berkeley Center of uh, Labor Research that um, showed that 125,000 DACA um, eligible people in California would be eligible for this health insurance expansion, and they don't know it. Yep. So, and 125,000 is, is a, in California is a small yeah. population in any other state. Massachusetts, it was double the size of the uninsured population, you know, near, I'm sorry, one-sixth the size of their uninsured population, because it was about 600,000. I mean, so 125,000 people is a very significant population, and we know that they have significant health needs, many of which are mental health needs that are related to the fact that they're under this stress and this fear in their daily lives of deportation and of difficulties, you know, dealing with those issues. I interviewed one of these young men for a story, and he had no idea that he was eligible. And even when I mentioned it, he didn't believe it. Mm. So it's yeah. some, some of the research right. that, that your center has done addressed some of that as well, right? That there's this skepticism or Right, disbelief. they supplemented the surveys. I, I wasn't on the team, but you know, I, I've talked to uh, Dr. Nadi Purat, who was one of that member, team members, and they supplemented it with these kind of qualitative studies where you go out and, and talk to people in focus groups. And it, it really is um, quite interesting about how there's just this barrier of feeling like, even if it exists, it doesn't apply to me personally. Mm -hmm. Someone's telling me I'm eligible, someone's telling me I can do this, I still don't believe it. Right. Back to the health needs. You mentioned mental health needs. Jim, can you talk a little more about some of the health needs of uh, immigrants in, in Los Angeles County and specifically undocumented immigrants? Well, you know, as I said earlier, there's, you know, you have a, a, a situation where you have a, a significant segment of, of the population that has not accessed health care for the most part. So they've, um, or they have in an episodic way. 
uh, at emergency rooms or at community health centers when they're really sick. But <clears throat> I, I was talking to a, a group of our doctors today, um, and we were talking about this tremendous increase in, in the population that we're seeing. And what they were sharing was the incredible numbers of folks with comorbidities um, who've never been diagnosed with diabetes and hypertension and a whole host of chronic conditions and the expense of, of providing care to, to the population uh, who hasn't accessed care before. And if you speak, you know, if I walk through our lobbies, uh, you know, every day and, and if you speak to patients um, and ask them, you know, have you been here before? What's interesting is that about half of every patient that comes into our clinic every day are new. Um, and haven't accessed healthcare before. And these are folks, um, you know, who are really sick. People who, with diabetes and hypertension and, um, you know, chronic ear infections that they've had for years. And um, So what have they been doing for care? Have they been, like we were talking about in the green room, going to Mexico? Have they been um, doing herbal remedies? I mean, how, what, what are they doing? <clears throat> home remedies a lot, home remedies a lot. Um, and then when they get really sick, an emergency room. But... Um, you know, a lot of patients, you know, wind up at the county, you know, they had a, they have diabetes and they had a ingrown toenail that could have been um, cleaned and they could have been treated with, and got, they got an infection, it could have been treated with broad spectrum antibiotics and they wind up at the county nine months later and their foot is amputated. Um, and so we hired a, a podiatrist to start to see our, every single one of our diabetic patients so that we could provide that kind of preventive, I mean, it's a specialty service that we don't get reimbursed for, but it's really preventive when you're dealing with folks with diabetes. And so, you know, you just see, you just see a lot of amputees, you see a lot of folks who um, are blind um, from putting off care for so many years. Do you think, and maybe this is for all three of you, do you think some of that will start to change um, with more access for those who, ha who do have insurance and with people who, who don't have, can't qualify, then coming, like you said, out of the woodwork into these community health centers, do you think that will start to change? No, I think it's just going to increase the sense of inequality between the people who have access to coverage and those who don't. I'm going to come down on the side of I hope so. <laughs> Optimism. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to be optimistic that I, I really want it to change. And I, I see the good work that's going on here and the good work that you're doing, you know, trying to, to get people covered. And I, I really think that in this culture of at least changing the conversation so that we're not saying we don't ever want to talk about those people and we don't really care that as a society we're having conversations like this and there is legislation that's introduced and being seriously discussed about we need to treat these people as people, uh, people first, undocumented second, and from a public health perspective and from a moral perspective, we should be providing health care to people who need it. Well, I guess since we all agree on most things, I guess maybe I'll take the... Uh a completely different. I actually um, think that <clears throat> the Affordable Care Act had a profound impact on the health of the nation, and I think that including the undocumented, because I think that the, the expansion of community health centers, um, the investment in that expansion provided increased access to millions and millions of undocumented immigrants across the country. Um, I think the creation of community health centers as medical homes 
uh, will have a profound impact. And I think that when you start to talk about expanding county coverage options like Healthy Way LA Unmatched, or you talk about the Lotta Bill uh, in the state that would provide coverage to the undocumented, then I think you're starting to, and I think we're already seeing, I, I'm seeing it every day on the ground, we are beginning to create a culture of coverage, a culture of access for more and more people, certainly not enough. I mean, there's obviously 200,000 people that the CEO says are undocumented in LA County that are not accessing care right now um, through the county programs. But I think, I think that the publicity um, around this, I think that the, um, the access increase as a result of the Affordable Care Act um, is going gonna, is gonna to have a, an impact. And we won't, I mean, I'm sure you'll be studying it for years to come, but um, I, I do believe that we're, we're, we're getting much closer. I mean, we still have a ways to go. Um, but I do believe in LA County, if we can get the county to triple the Healthy Way LA Unmatched program, I think that's profound. I think that's extremely significant. And even if it's just a stopgap until the Lotta Bill is, 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 a, is, is passed and signed in, in a year or two, then I think we're getting there. But that only addresses LA County, right? I mean, there are, count are there counties, maybe that's a question for you, well, where you can't get care at all. Well, no, not really, okay. because there's a community health, a network of community health centers in every county. Um, and there are hospitals that provide charity care, and then there are some state-funded programs that provide portions of care, most significantly restricted scope Medi-Cal, which provides funding for emergency services for people who are eligible. But it's very hard. There are, you know, there aren't, there weren't enough providers who took Medi-Cal patients before it was expanded. And it's important to understand that the expansion was not just an increase in the income level. Yeah. Before, you had to be in certain categories which excluded childless adults. So every homeless person you see out there, well, not because they're families, but many, many people who were desperately poor were not eligible for Medicaid before. Those rules have changed. But that's put a lot of pressure on the provider network, especially in the counties that don't have a rich network of services. So we really need a more comprehensive solution. And I was going to say, I like Jim's answer. I'm changing my answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> We're going back to Austin. I like that. <laughs> um, please. Right. I also wanted to point out one other factoid. We're focusing a lot on the undocumented immigrants because those are the people who we really need to find a solution for. But it's important to remember that undocumented immigrants are, you know, it's hard to find numbers, but they're about a fourth of the foreign-born population that's living in California. So we tend to think like citizen, undocumented, all that gray area in between. There are a lot of people in all that gray area in between. And, you know, it's really, it's important that we keep track, we keep, don't lose sight of, you know, their needs to be served as well. And I'm touching on that real quickly, and then please remember your thought, but okay. th that gray area in, in between, can you tell us wh what legal immigrants or people who have been here less than five years, more than five years, what they qualify for okay. under the Affordable Care Act? So, Briefly. All right. One of the things that California has done well is taking away that five-year problem for people in the state. So we don't need to worry about that. So talking in high speed. Um, 
Under the law that <laughs> very went, complicated. Under the law that went into effect in 1996, only a small subset of lawfully present immigrants are able to get Medi-Cal. So those are primarily lawful permanent residents or green card holders, and refugees, asylees, and some other specific categories of people who fled persecution. So all of your student visa holders, H-1B, people granted deferred action, people with TPS. Um, these are all different immigration statuses. These are statuses. all different lawfully present immigrants who are not eligible for Medi-Cal. One of the changes with the Affordable Care Act was making the exchange and the subsidies available to all those different classes of immigrants. Okay, so I'm going to rewind a little bit. Please. Um, going all the way back to the question about counties where there might not be access and thinking geographically in California. Um, sometimes we in urban side forget just how rural the rural side of California is. Um, some people have described California as two Massachusetts surrounded by Montana. And uh, there have been times when, yeah, there have been times when I've traveled out to the Montana section, particularly Inland Empire, San Bernardino, which many people think stops at Palm Desert, Palm Springs. Well, there's another two hours drive beyond that to the Arizona border. And when you talk to um, some healthcare advocates out there, they're very concerned about the fact of yes, they do have a medical center, they do have a clinic, but it might be quite literally just an hour and a half drive away or two hour drive away. You know, with, we're not talking with lots of traffic here, you know, I mean, it's nobody else on the road two hours through the desert. And it, it's very difficult um, to be able to get to those services that are located in the more concentrated urban centers. And of course, many of those workers that they're concerned about are the immigrant population and the undocumented immigrant worker population. We go out and tell them, well, our California Health Interview Survey says you have about 35% undocumented immigrant workers. And they say, we don't think you're counting everybody. And we try to, we, you know, we, we do population weights and we really try to make sure we're, we're getting the best estimates you possibly can. But, you know, people on the ground are telling us that they think that population is much higher. So it's a, it's a tricky situation when you're trying to bring health care to somebody that is just two hours away or an hour and a half away in the mountains or the desert. And this is where some of the largest populations of immigrants and undocumented immigrants are in the Central Valley and the rural areas of the state, correct? You know, um, in terms of breakdowns, actually Los Angeles is, is really the epicenter of all large populations, but <laughs> we, are, no, we, we have the largest way. uninsured, we have the largest in, of many things, but uh, it, it's certainly um, a significant population. So one area in our last uh, few minutes that we haven't talked about is immigration reform. So if, is there any hope for that passing at some point? And if it does, <clears throat> How, how could it and would it help all of these folks who are left uninsured after the Affordable Care Act? Let's start with you. <laughs> okay, well, we're not giving up, but we are working in parallel tracks to encourage the administration to take every action that it can administratively to decrease the number of deportations and provide a secure status for the most people. Um, unfortunately, the, the immigration reform bills that have gotten the most momentum would exclude pe the people who were in the process of adjusting their status for, do you remember, like a seven-year period um, throughout that entire adjustment process. And then in, you alluded to the existence of a five-year federal bar for newly arrived immigrants. It's really immigrants who newly achieve status. So then they would have to complete the five-year bar period after that before they would be eligible for anything like Medicaid. So while 
immigration reform would create peace of mind for a huge cross-section of our workforce and, you know, reduce this climate of people living in constant fear. Um, the, the existing proposals would not do a lot on, for benefits eligibility. And even those who eventually would become or have a path to, to legalization or to citizenship, citizenship, it could take many, many years, right? And in the meantime, they will continue to show up on your doorstep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why I think county and state solutions are so important. But um, there was um, negotiation that was going on uh, led by Congressman Javier Becerra, who's uh, a congressman from Los Angeles, uh, with um, the Republicans when immigration reform seemed like a possible thing where um, some of the penalties uh, that folks were going to pay in order to, to get online to become uh, legalized could be used to provide health care services at community health centers. Um, and that was something he was pushing and he had support on. But then, of course, the whole immigration reform thing fell out. And we were talking in the green room. And you don't really think that's a possibility anytime soon. So. <laughs> well, I, I think it's an open secret that politically speaking, it's, it's not something that's high on um, the House Republicans' agenda, and they have the power to stop legislation that's already been enacted in the Senate, so, you know, that's what's happening. So I, I think um, we have the difficulty of that even budget arguments aren't working. I mean, study after study has shown that it saves money in so many ways to give um, health insurance or access to be able to get health insurance, even by paying with their own money, that um, you know, increases risk pools, it reduces premiums for all of us, creates more of a, a herd immunization effect where all of us are protected from diseases, that um, low-income immigrant workers are concentrated in service positions where they're serving food and they're cleaning hospitals and it behooves us all to make sure that they're not sick. I mean, all of those arguments have been made and they aren't making any headway. Um, uh, years ago, um, a, a staffer from Barbara Boxer's office, um, when, when the ACA was being discussed, um, told me that they would love to be able to put um, the legal permanent residents who were under five years in the Medi-Cal expansion, or in the Medicaid expansion, I think it was nationally, simply because it saves money. Tr paying the subsidies for them in the private market is much more expensive than giving the Medicaid coverage, but that argument couldn't possibly go anywhere because nobody's listening to budget arguments anymore. They're just listening to the politics of the situation on, th on that side. So I, I really think that um, it's just gonna take a, a change in who is controlling the agenda of the House um, for that to happen and go through. Okay, on that note, I think we are going to open it up to the audience for questions. Hi, my name is Linda Sharp. I'm a primary care doctor at Harbor UCLA, and I want to thank you. Um, one question that I had tonight was about DACA and what happens when people are eligible, so you answer that for me. Another question I have, and I wanted your commentary, was what I'm seeing now is this expansion is wonderful and people are getting uh, Medi-Cal and that's allowing a lot more people into the system, but I think it's creating a tiered system where the undocumented are trying to access services or people who are self-pay are trying to access and they're being pushed to the back of the line because there's such a huge influx. So what can we do, um, because I agree with you that I think access to healthcare is a human right, what can we do to eliminate the tiered system that we've created with Obamacare and, and expansion of healthcare services? Well, I think um, 
I mean, <laughs> I guess I would say um, a couple things. I think, first of all, I would argue that we need to continue to expand community health centers. And we need to continue to expand the funding for community health centers um, and incentivize community health centers to continue to serve uh, the undocumented and the uninsured. Um, and then I think the other issue is uh, to create uh, coverage for the undocumented and, and then allow um, that coverage to compete with other public insurance options. And so I think if, you know, um, w the way we're talking and negotiating with the county on the, on the current Healthy Way LA Unmatched program and what it's going to morph into, it's going to look more and more like a Medi-Cal-like product with a capitated, you know, monthly payment to providers to provide all of their care as their medical home. So <clears throat> the more we can get there, um, I think the better. And I, frankly, I, I really believe um, that you you know you can you can solve problems by example. So um, you know it might not be that we um, create an insurance option for all of the undocumented folks in the United States of America tomorrow, but I think it would have a profound impact on the fight for that if we were to create that, for example, in LA County tomorrow. Um, so I think, um, I think we have to just keep um, building that process and, and demanding and fighting for where we know we can win it so that we can set an example of, of what, it, what it might look like. I'm, I'm going to kind of speak from more of a personal rather than a researcher perspective that it's, uh, I, I think it's up to the providers to decide not to implement a tiered system like that. I know that it's very hard when one patient has insurance and you know you'll get reimbursed and, and one patient does not and you can only see so many per day and you have to stay in business and you have to have that model of you know, whether or not you're for profit or not for profit, you have to at least be able to you know, pay your, your salary and your rent. But um, providers really have to have the culture of I will treat everyone equally and not make that distinction and it's, it's kind of up to how that's implemented to be able to do it. Now, um, you know, I, I'll tell you, uh, some people think we already have that um, because they have not had to try to access the system as an uninsured person. And uh, I have a feeling that many uninsured people would disagree, regardless of their immigration status. But it is something that I'm hearing from doctors on the street and when I'm out reporting is that in, before this federal money was available, the county system didn't ask, are you undocumented or are you documented? You were just uninsured. So now it has become something that the county is being forced to think about, documentation status. Dr. <coughs> Kathy Sullivan, I'm a former faculty at USC, um, so I've worked the safety net for 20 years. And uh, one of the things that I find that's you know, really hard about the discussion of Affordable Care Act is that it's a, always talking about coverage. And it's not the Affordable Coverage Act, actually, it's the Affordable Care Act. And so those of us who've been health professionals, and I'm a health professional for 33 years, we're not involved in the discussion. And so one of the things that California, I think, has been really lacking on is looking at alternative care models and alternative payment models. So other states like Oregon and Minnesota and New York are trying uh, are looking at direct primary care are looking at alternative payment practice and payment models other than the community clinic model which really isn't sufficient to handle the need that we have and so um i really would like and i, and I think those of us who are health professionals are tired of cutting off feet and things that seeing the things that we're seeing and um wish that 
there was a way to have a discussion between public health and health service delivery about different service delivery and payment models. And I'd just like to hear your comments on if you've heard anything about that in California. Because if you had, please let us know, because there's a bunch of professionals here who would like to hear about it. <laughs> well, you know, we are talking to the county in the Healthy Way LA Unmatched program about a, a different payment methodology. So we are having those conversations. And the California Primary Care Association is in conversation with Department of Healthcare Services in the state about an alternative payment methodology, um, particularly for the community health center. So I think, uh, as far as a I don't know, as far as a larger scale um, discussion on that, though I, I, I think I think Obamacare is in some ways alluding to and pointing us in the direction of um, different methods of, of reimbursement, more focus on prevention. I mean, there is, you know, regardless of, you know, those of us who were, you know, big single-payer advocates back in the day, um, you know, that, that perspective aside for a minute, um, the fact is, even though it expanded insurance coverage and it was really insurance reform, um, the fact is that it did refocus um, the debate and the, and, and the direction of healthcare into a much more preventive and primary care focus. So I think in the long term, that's gonna have a profound impact and it's gonna force, I think, some of the payment changes and, and service changes that you're talking about. I'd like to add on to that, if I may. Um, you know, and speaking from kind of a more private provider perspective, I've heard Herb Schultz, um, for those of you who don't know, I, I'm sure many of you here do, but for those who don't know, he's the director of Region 9 for Health and Human Services, uh, so for California, among many other states, um, mentioned that uh, Sharp Healthcare System in San Diego is the one place in the country that has pulled down every single Affordable Care Act grant you could possibly have. Um, in terms of trying to expand their community programs, in terms of moving to ACOs, which is accountable care organizations, um, which is the new HMO, but people are still trying to figure out how that works operationally. Um, so, and the money that you mentioned that you know, help with your expansions. I mean, so the funding has been in there um, to try and, and move to talking about it. And I, I do think it's very important. Another thing that I think gets overlooked um, is the Medicare wellness exam. I think that's a, a sea change that Medicare providers, and again, it's, it is through an insurance program, so it leaves out the uninsured, but people, and leaves out those of us that aren't on Medicare, but they get to be reimbursed for a once a year visit to go in and talk about how do you stay well, as opposed to let's fix whatever needs fixing. But to devise some kind of plan that, um, you know, God willing, you will never have to have an amputation because of a diabetic complication because we had this conversation early on about how you can, what you can do ongoing to stay well. And that kind of focus on free preventive care and hopefully other insurance programs might eventually take up this wellness exam and perhaps providers will find some funding stream to be able to have those kind of talks with their patients. I think that is very important in the long run. My name is Lisa Carroll. I'm also a healthcare provider in the county system. So I'm also very grateful that we you. now have the expansion, but I am an advocate of single payer. And I think, as you said, uh, it's a human right. And so I'm not even sure why we're having this conversation because uh, we should be moving in that direction. So since I'm a person of action as well, I'd like to know um, two things. 
What do we need to do now, each one of us who are in the healthcare field, to get the word out? What would you recommend that we do? And then two, what do we do to mobilize in California? Because I think we do have the opportunity in California to get a single-payer system going. What would you say are our two most critical things that we should do now? And how do we build that now? I think I, my thought on that is we did that with children, with teaching us how to recycle. So I'm wondering if we should just go into the kindergartens and the first grades and teaching them that that may be it. And maybe in 10 or 12 years, they'll be teaching us that it's a right. So I just, I would like your thoughts from your perspective. Oh, that's the political action question. Um, so I, I know some people in the audience here who would love to answer that. But um, from my perspective, you know, I, I think that we have had um, two single-payer bills enacted and then killed by a former governor. Um, our current governor has not necessarily um, made a firm stand, but is not necessarily friendly either. So, I mean, it, it's difficult to say whether or not action can be taken now. But if you want to talk to Anthony Wright at the, uh, the reception, he's back there. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think uh, it, it, it's something that there, you know, there's organizations of Physicians for Single Payer. There are marches that happen in Sacramento. I think the physician voice can be loudly heard and certainly is well respected in that conversation. Vermont is currently moving towards single payer. They are the only state that has enacted legislation that says this is something we're going to do by this deadline. They're still trying to figure out how to do it with their 50,000 person population they're grappling with. So it's not a small thing that we're talking about here in California to try and do that. Um, there are many obstacles and barriers. And even the former Kuehl bills were pretty vague. They were, we want to get there as a goal, but we still don't quite know how to do it. Um, but I, I think those conversations are certainly still happening. And if you want to add your political fervor to them, they would love to have you. Yeah, I was just going to say that, um, <clears throat> as you know, in the Affordable Care Act in 2017, states can, um, can develop different methods of... Um, insurance coverage or general coverage, and they can actually move to single payer if they choose, as long as they wind up covering more people than was covered under the Affordable Care Act. So um, there is an effort in California, Physicians for a National Health Program is leading an effort in California to be ready for a ballot initiative or legislation in 2017 uh, to try to do single payer again. So I think there's lots of stuff to do um, on that regard, and, and you know, certainly I think um, those of us in the community health center world, um, I think any of us actually in the healthcare world realize that when you're trying to bill 15 different payers for different services you're providing, it's just ridiculous. And it's just the amount of added cost and administration is crazy. Yeah. So I'm the aforementioned Anthony Wright, Executive Director <laughs> of Health Access California. Um, thanks for the plug. Um, we. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there are action items on the, the things that were mentioned. Tomorrow there's a, a press conference midday in front of USC on the Health Away LA, LA proposal to cover the undocumented here in LA. Um, April 30th, the Senator Lauder's bill is up in, a, in Senate Health Committee. Um, and we do believe that these are stepping stones. Um, the Affordable Care Act is a stepping stone. This is a stepping stone to broader health reforms, as was mentioned in the previous uh, qu question. Uh, uh, it's, it's not a slippery slope, but it is scaling a mountain upward toward a, a more equitable healthcare system. Mm -hmm. But if we do get to the goal of even just including everybody, which is I think what all these efforts are about, is that even if, even if you get to the point of the health or economic benefits, it's about inclusion and making sure that people who are in part of our, 
people who are part of our community, part of our economy, should also be part of our health system. What, what, do you th what, what could you imagine would be the impacts on the healthcare system by that inclusion? Um, our, our former county director, Mitch Katz, used to run a program in San Francisco called Healthy San Francisco. And once they started admitting a lot more people from the Mission District, from Chinatown in San Francisco, they found a lot of demand-driven change in how they had to do their safety net in, in terms of language access, video medical interpretation, things like that. LA is a different beast than San Francisco. What do you imagine that LA would have to do to respond to that? And what, in what ways would that actually improve the health system for everybody by having those folks included? That's a good question. I think um, the first thing that pops into my head is um, the need for more primary care providers. And so I think there would have to be a fundamental restructuring um, of training programs, residency programs, um, to, um, and I think we're, we're experiencing this now with the shortage of primary care providers to meet the, the growth that's resulting from the Affordable Care Act. So I think that, that, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is that that's, I think, what would be the first challenge. I think from the vantage point of, uh, um, of what the benefit would be, um, I think, you know, I think there's been study after study that shows the impact on, on life expectancy, on quality of life, on all kinds of um, public health and other kinds of measures of uh, people who have access to, to health care and health coverage. And it's important to keep in mind that when you talk about letting people in, what you're talking about is connecting people to a payment mechanism that they didn't have, that they don't have now. So the demand would go up, but the sources of reimbursement would also go up for service providers. I agree that the pool of potential service providers needs to be expanded. One area that people are looking at is people that had, that were health professionals in their home country and giving them the supports that they need to get licensed in the United States so that they can come here and be culturally and linguistically competent providers. And there's other efforts, I think, too, underway. Loan, loan repayment programs that have been in existence for a long time. A lot of conversation about um, speeding up the, the, the medical school, uh, the length of time somebody is in medical school, opening new medical schools. More autonomy More, for mid-level providers. Right. Exactly. A lot of scope of practice conversations of having nurse practitioners and physician's assistants taking on more responsibilities. Yeah, and one thing that I, I think that hasn't been talked about as much is uh, and we're, we're starting to see it already, but less competition among insurance companies as the main kind of conversation and more competition among providers, honestly. You know, when everybody does have coverage and you have this choice of providers, you kind of see it a little bit right now um, with Cedar sinai is, is doing a, a hard marketing campaign on are we in your network of your covered California plan and, and all of those issues. And, and I know it's a big issue for UCLA uh, Medical Center as well to think about our market share of the West LA population, but taking from the rest of Los Angeles as well. And so I think there's, there's going to be this try and uh, you know, compete with other providers to try and, and, and bring people in to be able to bring their reimbursements with them. Thank you so much. Let's give them a big round of applause.